This is Speaking of Writers. I'm Steve Richards. His very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life, draws from Jonathan Alter's unprecedented access in writing the first definitive biography of its kind, in addition to interviewing Jimmy Carter more than a dozen times. Alter interviewed 18 members of the Carter family, George H.W. Bush, Barack Obama, Walter Mondale, Carter's top cabinet members, and over 250 people close to Carter. Alter tells the epic story of an enigmatic man of faith and his improbable journey from barefoot boy a global icon. Alter paints an intimate and surprising portrait of the only president since Thomas Jefferson, who can fairly be called a Renaissance man, a complex figure, ridiculed and later revered, with a piercing intelligence, prickly intensity, and biting wit beneath the patent and smile. Here is a moral exemplar for our times, a flawed but underrated president of decency and vision who is committed to telling the truth to the American people. Jonathan Alter is an award-winning historian, columnist, and documentary filmmaker, an MSNBC political analyst and former senior editor at Newsweek. He's the author of three New York Times bestsellers, The Center Holes, Obama and His Enemies, The Promise, President Obama, Year One, and The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days in the Triumph of Hope. Happy to have Jonathan Alter join me now here on Speaking of Writers. Jonathan, welcome to this program. Thanks a lot, Steve. So why Jimmy Carter is a subject for you? Well, um, you know, I, uh, I had actually been an intern in Jimmy Carter's White House when I was in college. And then for many years, for decades, really, I hadn't really paid much attention to him. I, I wrote a column for Newsweek uh, for quite a while, and I interviewed Carter once on a Habitat for Humanity site in the year 2000. But other than that, um, didn't think much of him or about him uh, until 2015 when um, I heard him talk about Camp David. And I realized in his description of what he did to bring peace between Israel and Egypt, that there had to be more to this guy than the kind of easy shorthand, bad president, great former president. And when I started to dig into it a little bit, I realized that uh, he really had been terribly underrated as a president, that he was a a political failure, but a substantive and even visionary success, uh, especially on issues like the energy uh, environment, uh, energy, the environment and human rights and a number of other things where he was looking way out over the horizon and doing things uh, uh, important for the American people in the 1970s. And then the other thing, Steve, that really struck me was this is a complicated guy who's led a kind of epic American life. And his story is like something out of a novel. And I, I just became fascinated by his journey from, you know, barefoot boy with no plumbing or electricity to a global icon. Um, and with a lot of ups and downs in, in, in the middle, including a, a kind of a, a, a really impactful, uh, complicated trip through the Jim Crow South, uh, where he was living for uh, much of his life. I mentioned during the introduction, Jonathan, that uh, you interviewed Jimmy Carter more than a dozen times. You interviewed 18 members of the Carter family, former Presidents Bush, Obama, also Walter Mondale. Was there a common thread, common theme that you found talking to all these people about and their thoughts about the former president? 
Yeah, I think there was great respect for him uh, and for his accomplishments and a feeling, uh, you know, I just uh, talked to uh, former Vice President Mondale just last week about this. You know, there was a feeling that it was time for him to get his due and that he left office in 1981 after having been just blown out in a landslide by Ronald Reagan. And, and, you know, all of the good and interesting and especially relevant nowadays, decent and honest things that he did uh, were kind of forgotten, as, in part because he was getting so much done as a former president that people you know, made this assumption that uh, he, you know, he was only good at that. When actually when he was president, he had many more levers of power than he's had out of office. And uh, just, you know, one of many examples, 14 major pieces of environmental legislation that he signed. And he was actually planning to uh, address climate change had he been reelected. That would have been in the early 1980s, if you can imagine uh, how things would have been different with a 30-year head start on that. What was his uh, racially progressive legacy, do you think? Well, that story um, I found absolutely fascinating because uh you know he was his father was a white supremacist his mother was a nurse who took care of black patients uh on this farm in you know rural georgia um and he was largely raised by an illiterate black woman farmhand um so he was always racially tolerant when he was in the navy but then he gets back from the navy in 1953 and He's trying to build his peanut warehouse business, and he's ambitious to get into politics. And if he gets involved in the civil rights movement, neither of those things would be possible because there was just this white terrorism that was going on in his own backyard. So for 18 years, he sort of ducked the civil rights movement. And then upon becoming governor of Georgia in 1971, he makes up for lost time, and he basically you know, does what in the second half of his life, what he did not do in the first half. And so he, you know, in in Georgia, initially he integrates uh, the Georgia state government, uh, appointing uh, black judges for the first time, uh, uh, senior advisors who were African-American. And he puts up Martin Luther King's portrait in uh, the state capitol and draws close to Daddy King and Coretta King even though he had never actually taken the time to meet Martin Luther King, because before he was assassinated, uh, he was very unpopular in Carter's district, so it would have, his state Senate district, so it would have hurt him to do so. So he, he makes up for lost time. Then when he becomes president, he globalizes the civil rights movement with his, his human rights campaign. And, and, uh, and then, of course, you know, in, in the United States, he appoints... Uh, lots of black officials and, and uh, 40 uh, black federal judges, uh, far more than all of his predecessors combined, um, and uh, maintains the strong allegiance of African Americans, uh, even when other constituencies were deserting him. And Andrew Young, who was you know Martin Luther King's closest. Uh, confidant. Um, he uh, gives a blurb on the back of my book, uh, endorsing my book, and and uh, is a very strong booster of Jimmy Carter and, and uh, his uh, legacy on race.
chatting with Jonathan Alter. His book is His Very Best, Jimmy Carter Alive. You've clearly outlined he did make up for um, those 18 years remaining silent. Why did he remain silent during those 18 years about civil rights abuses? Well, you know, he, he wasn't entirely silent. Like, he spoke up to try to integrate his church, failed. Um, but uh, just to give you one example, there was an interracial farm just a few miles from Plains, Georgia, where he lived. And uh, this was a very radical thing in the 1950s and 60s, uh, a communal farm based on religious principles, but it was considered to be uh, Marxist-Leninist. It was not, but that's the way the people in the area viewed it. So a boycott was launched against the farm. Nobody was allowed to do any business with it. And Carter observed the boycott, though his wife and mother sometimes would go out and bring things to people at the farm. Carter did not sell uh, to uh, that farm. And at first I thought, wow, that's really terrible. He would do that. Um, But then I learned that uh, one of his competitors, also in the farm supply business, broke the boycott and his business was dynamited. It was just blown sky high. So this was a period of intense uh, violence. And um, he, I, I really think the reason that he, he ducked at first was that he was, uh, you know, afraid for his business. Then later, he did it out of some political ambition. So he, he was elected governor running a kind of a dog whistle campaign where he appealed to some of the cracker vote. He didn't say anything racist, but he, he, uh, you know, let the uh, segregationists think that he was on their side. Then he immediately, within minutes of taking office, actually seconds of taking office, in his inaugural address as governor of Georgia, he says, the time for racial discrimination is over. And, you know, that might sound like nothing now, but it was a huge deal then. And uh, white voters felt he betrayed them and black voters you know reacted in the crowd i interviewed several uh they they said uh he said what you know they couldn't believe it and then he went on to be a very progressive governor of georgia but um, this was at this kind of pivot point in uh, in the history of the american south and he became a uh, he he became kind of the face of the new South. And that's one of the ways he was elected president when he was at 0% in the polls, when he, when he started is that he represented something different out of the, the South. And one of the things that's interesting about what's going on today is that, you know, it's the first time since then that Democrats are maybe in this election starting to make some headway again in the South, because what happened was, you know, the South had been solidly democratic, segregationist democratic, and then the segregationists all went into the Republican Party, and uh, the Democrats had mostly African American voters. This is in the period right after Carter's governor, uh, and from about 1980 until the present. Now you're seeing increasing numbers of white voters in the South who are willing to vote Democratic. So American politics is always changing, and I, I think anybody who's interested in the sort of transitions in American politics will find, uh, you know, those chapters of my book uh, especially interesting. And possibly even with Carter's home state potentially going uh, Democratic this year, too, or up in play. It, it could. Yeah. That would be 
that would be amazing. And, you know, I was, uh, I, I've been, I remain in touch with the Carter and his circle there and they are, you know, pushing hard, uh, for the Democrats. Um, and, and, and in some ways, you know, Carter represents, uh, uh, Carter and Trump, although they have nothing in common. Uh, and I once asked Carter, do you have anything in common with Donald Trump? And he gave me a one word answer. No, but right now Trump is a little bit like in Carter's position in 1980, where he's in danger of getting swamped as an incumbent. Um, but um, I think there's growing interest in Carter, I found in response to my book, especially among some younger people, um, uh, because he does represent this sense of uh, uh, decency and possibility and idealism um, that they hope we'll see again in the American presidency for all of his failures he was always trying to do the right thing and he had a lot more successes than people remember jonathan you said in response to your book uh has the former president given you any uh feedback on the book so uh, i i haven't heard from him directly but i heard from a friend who visited jimmy and rosalind carter just uh last week that he is listening to the book on the audible audio book uh because um after he had a fall last year um uh he, he's had problems with his eyesight so he's listening to the book and enjoying it and mrs carter is reading it there it's warts and all um you know there's plenty of criticism of him in the book but according to this uh this mutual friend who uh, just visited them last week, Carter understands that um, it's important that I um, finally get a proper biography of him. And so I think he's willing to accept uh, the, uh, the criticism that's in there because mostly I understand that he was an, an underrated president and has led an inspiring life. And finally, Jonathan, a two-part loaded question for you. Uh, you mentioned uh, earlier if uh, he would have been elected, uh, re-elected uh, for a second term, he would have begun addressing global warming in the 80s. What else do you think he would have done? The what-if question. And what do you think his legacy is? Well, I think his, his main regret is that he wasn't able to bring a co comprehensive Middle East peace with the Palestinian state and Israel living in peace with its neighbors. So Camp David was extraordinarily important because it took the Egyptian army uh, off the table. That was the only army that could destroy Israel. And they had fought four wars in 30 years, and there hasn't been a shot fired in anger since then. But he wasn't able to get that comprehensive settlement. And he told me at one point that he believes if he'd been reelected, he would have been able to do so. Also, you know, he appointed Paul Volcker as chair of the Fed, and Volcker ended inflation. Right. But his medicine was so painful that it helped cost Carter uh, re-election, and then it helped Reagan, because Reagan inherited the good economy that Volcker created. So that would have been to Carter's benefit if he'd been re-elected. So on his, he would have been able to end inflation on his watch uh, had he been uh, re-elected. And then I think he also would have... Um, he would have begun to uh, address some of the structural changes in the American economy that were hurting middle-class workers, which was something that he wasn't able to 
do much of in his in his first term. So there there's several things that he would have gotten done. He certainly wouldn't wouldn't have you know uh, you know ended uh, a lot of environmental regulations as uh, Reagan and later Trump did. And then one of their big regrets is that Rosalind Carter got through a very ambitious mental health bill just before Carter left office. A lot of the elements of it were resurrected under President Obama. But Reagan, one of the first things he did was he he trashed Rosalind Carter's mental health bill, cut all the funding for it, or most of the funding. Uh, and he did that with a number of uh, of Carter's programs, and that would not have happened uh, had he been reelected. I think his legacy is uh, that we can have honesty, decency, integrity, intelligence, and uh, a, a vision of the future in the American presidency, and that that uh, I think his real legacy is that you know we can do better. But I'd say his single biggest legacy, and this is what Carter himself told me, is something we haven't even discussed, and that is that Carter uh, first uh, established full diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. Deng Xiaoping came to the United States. And the two of them established what is now the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And for all of its problems, it is the foundation of the global economy. It is the foundation of international trade and, uh, you know, the tech economy. Um, And none of it would have been possible. At the time, China had uh, the GDP of a sub-Saharan African country. They had no development at all. And that was only possible because of this relationship with the United States. And it brought hundreds of millions of people, Chinese, out of poverty. And that in turn, because if you believe that trade you know, does eventually lift, lift uh, all countries that engage in it on a fair basis, um, you know, it eventually helped a, a lot of Americans, too. So whatever our problems are now in our relations with the Chinese, and I'm not underestimating them, nor is Jimmy Carter, this is a huge change in the history of the world. It was the fastest economic development in the history of the world, and it was only possible because of what Jimmy Carter did. He's Jonathan Alter. The book is his very best, Jimmy Carter, A Life. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot, Steve. And this is Speaking of Writers.